Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you so much for giving us the inspired word, the canon. Thank you for giving us your spirit to guide us through these lessons, through the word. Thank you for enabling us and encouraging us to read our own Bibles as an everyday practice, as part of our walk even. Thank you for encouraging us this way. Uh, we pray, especially this season, Father, um, as we celebrate Christmas, those that are struggling, those that are still lost, of course, that our attitudes never wane, that we never grow weary, but rather are encouraged each by each other's faith at a time like this when people seem to need the most encouragement, oddly enough. We just ask for continued strength and perseverance as we complete this great commission that your Son put on us as his own sheep. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross 2,000 years ago. Is the very basis of our salvation, Father. Thank you. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this message title is The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works, Part 28. Uh, let me share one of the most telling passages of Scripture you know, and this is arguably, in the Old Testament, uh, if you're going to be concise um, and you think about all that you know about the Old Testament and the individuals and their relationship with God in the Old Testament, this particular two-verse passage is very telling. Um, it really speaks to the particular nature of the relationship between Israel and her true God. Go to Deuteronomy 30:19. Deuteronomy 30:19, and you notice that the Spirit's really not shy as of late, taking us back to Old Testament, which makes sense because what has He been telling us? He's saying that there's really only one gospel. Uh, the entire Bible is to edify the gospel proper, even. And with that said, um, to understand the gospel truly, wholly, uh, intimately, you have to understand the God of the universe. And that the God of the universe, his heart uh, has never changed. His ways are consistent. Now, the circumstances might be different. And the revelation of those circumstances, how they're captured in Scripture, obviously might be, must be different, which they are. But if you learn to read the Bible and look for the God of the universe, what you see actually is very simple. He's consistent. You see the same God. Just different circumstances. And that's one of the perspectives that the Spirit's been teaching us. One of the freedom principles that the Spirit's been teaching us as we're learning about the gospel. Uh, with that said, Deuteronomy 30, 19. So we shouldn't be you know, fearful or uh, hesitant when reading the Old Testament. We should be open and uh, glad that it's there because it just really amplifies the essence of the God of the universe. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. 
I love that. I've set before you the blessing and the curse, life and death. So guess what? Choose life in order that you may live. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean to choose life? Look, verse 20, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. Yeah, that's how you choose life. Loving the Lord, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. Sound familiar? You don't have to go very far in the New Testament. You can go to the Gospels, it's the same God. You can go to the, the Epistles, it's the same God. You can go to the end, to the prophetic writings of Revelation. It's the same God. Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. In other words, there are promises even attached to living this life. And He just told you how to do it. Hold them fast. Love them. <laughs> Obey them. Sound familiar? It's the same. It's the same God. So, just starting off this evening, do you see how simple God has made it for mankind over the years? That's not difficult. Those aren't difficult cryptic passages. As the Spirit has been alluding to lately, none of this is really all that difficult. I think that's been the great message of all messages. That it's actually really simple. Is God's own heart a mystery? I think not. Is the word He inspired all that difficult to read or understand? I think not. Is His Son, Jesus Christ, unapproachable to us? May it never be. Up here on the board, <clears throat> on Jesus Christ. He is the most accessible human being to ever live. Yet multitudes live their whole lives estranged from Him, His friendship, His love. This, my friends, is the great tragedy throughout the ages. He is the most accessible human being to ever live. Certainly ain't you or me. We're often shut down, even to the ones closest to us. But he's always available. He's literally the most accessible human being to ever live, yet multitudes live their whole lives estranged from him, his friendship, his love. This is, I hope you agree, the great tragedy throughout the ages. And I was thinking about it. Some tragically come very close to him, but rather than accept Him for who He says He is, who we know Him to be, they try to get close to Him by doing, you know, so-called good works. And I'm trying to pull in our lessons 27 parts prior. They try to get close to Jesus Christ by doing so-called good works. And others whittle Him down to something He's not. People add, people subtract from the gospel, you see. Man has made a mess out of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
when, in fact, he is the most simple friend we could ever hope to have. It's a true and righteous statement that God has made even reconciliation to him. Very simple. So, this holds true. The simplest people are often the ones who bring the most glory to God. Jesus Christ, let's face it, folks, was not a complex human being. There were complexities to him. But God is so pure. Jesus Christ was so pure that that's where we get that passage from. Simplicity in what? Purity of devotion to Christ. It's, if, we ever, if we ever desire in any part of us to relate to Jesus Christ, we have to do so on a very pure level, a very simple level. He's not complicated. That's the craziest thing, isn't it? Then why is there so much confusion in so-called Christianity? Because of man. He's not complicated. He's the most accessible man to ever live. And he's also arguably, with all due respect to him, the simplest in many ways. The purest. So those that are able to relate at that level, they often bring the most glory to God. The simple, the simplest people. And I don't mean simple-minded. I don't mean... You know, you have to have a low IQ or something like that. I'm talking about just the simplicity of living life. Just the simplicity of, you know, living a life that is undistracted devotion to the Lord. That is living a life that is God-fearing. That is akin to what Paul sort of got close to in his own maturity. I just want to know Christ and Him crucified. Oh, Joshua, for me and my household, we serve the Lord. These are simple concepts. And so this simplicity is really coming out uh, over the course of these lessons. I hope you see it. The simplest people are often the ones who bring the most glory to God. Hold that thought. We're going to change gears and get back to it before we close. We are going to close the series out with more on this, but before we do, let's tie up some uh, loose ends first in our curriculum. And again, our curriculum lately has been on grace and works. Done an awful lot of work on both of these topics. Any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. By grace, you have been made a new creature, which plainly stated can only perform good works, the new creature can only perform good works. Up here on the board. By grace at salvation, you have been given a new nature. Like Jesus' perfect nature, your new nature cannot say or do anything inconsistent with grace. Your old nature is just the opposite, hence Paul's own admission of his struggle between the two in Romans 7. These are the facts. This is what Scripture has revealed to us time and again over the last few months. And to net that out, when it's put on the table by the Spirit from this pulpit, you either accept that God changes the believer, making them a new creature, or you don't. Either you accept what plainly stated Scripture states, or you reject it. 
it's what the Spirit's been saying. One of the greatest pitfalls the Spirit's been pointing out is that Christians, and I use that term lightly, Christians, some of them are even unsaved, sadly, often make the mistake of thinking that actually, quote, being saved is nothing more than what we would theologically call out as being justified. There's a whole group of people that are running with that gospel, that being saved is nothing more than what we would theologically call out as being justified. While the doctrine of justification is indeed a primary component of salvation, it most definitely is not all of it. On Saturday, you'll be receiving a blog entry meant to elaborate on this topic a little more, so I encourage you to read it as a necessary supplement to these lessons. For tonight, consider this. Again, we're just closing up shop. These are some final thoughts on justification. And remember the simplicity that we began with this evening. Do not get complicated. Been there, done that. Chances are I've been way more complicated than a collective of you in my own personal history. If the doctrine of justification were equivalent to the doctrine of salvation, we wouldn't call them out differently. Salvation is a much larger subject than just the judicial forensic aspects of what happens when God saves us. That's what he's been telling us. We are new creatures. New creatures is not some academic thing. Again, just think honestly, openly, plainly, simply. If the doctrine of justification were equivalent to the doctrine of salvation, we would just call them the same thing. We wouldn't call them out differently. Salvation is a much larger subject than just the judicial forensic aspects of what happens when God saves us. Justification, now concentrate. This is important. Justification primarily deals with the penalty of sin. Justified. It's a legal term. I've taught you this. The idea of justification involves a gavel, involves the Supreme Court of Heaven. It involves the very penalty of sin. So justification primarily deals with what we would call the penalty of sin. Stated succinctly, it means the penalty has been paid for by the blood of Christ. And what a wonderful grace gift from above. Amen? Beautiful. The fact that that penalty is removed by the blood of Christ, that the penalty is paid for, that the gavel has come down and said, you are made righteous, you are justified. What a wonderful, wonderful thing here on the board. Justification opens the door to reconciliation, which implies a real relationship between a new creature come alive in Christ and a living God. This is not merely a judicial reality, but a very personal one. And this is what the Spirit's been trying to say. 
This is why we reloaded the gospel, my friends, to get this part of it right. Justification opens the door to reconciliation. Imagine a, a, you know, a prisoner behind bars. It's not until they come out that they're able to wrap their arms around a loved one. It's not until they come out and that that personal connection can exist. But you see the justification, the freedom, the, the, the gavel coming down, the penalty being removed has to precede all that. But that's just the start of it, my friends. Justification opens the door to reconciliation, which implies a real relationship between a new creature come alive in Christ and a living God. This is not merely a judicial reality, but a very personal one. There's nothing personal about a gavel coming down. Stated a little differently up here on the board, justification is not the close of salvation, it is the doorway. It is how God can rightly adopt His children into His holy family. The penalty is no longer an issue for a saved person. Eternal life is much more than simply being justified. It is a gift in and of itself. Again, justification is not the close of salvation, it is the doorway. It is how God can rightly adopt His children into His holy family. The penalty is no longer an issue for a saved person. Eternal life is much more than simply being justified. Eternal life is a gift in and of itself. So a gospel that limits God's grace to judicial realities only is one that limits the grace and love of God. On Sunday I gave you the analogy that while a prisoner may like to hear that a judge has pardoned them, it isn't until that person literally walks outside the prison walls as a free man that he actually becomes free. So there's a distinction, and dead things don't walk. In other words, a sentence may remove the penalty, but freedom must be experienced as a change of personal circumstances for it to be real. Again, a sentence may remove the penalty, but freedom or a pardon may remove the penalty, but freedom must be experienced as a change of personal circumstances for it to be real. And that's what the Spirit's been teaching us. That's why we, at least in part, reloaded the gospel so that we got all of God's grace included in it that we weren't shortchanging it, that we weren't watering it down, that we weren't doing something unholy to it, that we weren't perverting the very grace of God by subtracting from salvation itself. But you see, if you get some of these things wrong, that's exactly what happens. The new creature. A true believer, a person who has been saved by grace through faith, has been made new. This new creature or this new nature is a partaker of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. 
this is a grace gift given at salvation or not at all. It is not something a person chooses after being saved, for that supposition implies a person has not been truly saved from sin. And that's echoes of Paul's writing in Romans 6, 2. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? This is where we ended on Sunday, so let's finish tying up our loose ends here. Let's review what it means, what died actually means. I gave you this in the Greek. Eris active indicative refers to something that dogmatically happened at a specific point in the past and continues to hold true. In other words, if you're saved, you're dead to sin. You're di- you have died to sin. A perfect example, then, is when a person is saved. You're saved at a specific point, and from then on out, it holds true that you're dead to sin, or you died to sin. That requires a little explanation, so let me give you its apothnesco in the Greek. And again, it's heirs active indicative, which I just gave you. It means that when a person is saved, sin loses its dominion over them. They become dead to sin from sin's perspective. You were born dead as far as God was concerned when you were born. But the whole the tables turn, in other words. Now that you're made alive in Christ, you're now dead to sin. Din ha, de, uh, sin has no dominion over you anymore. No power over you. Do you understand? So from sin's perspective, you've died to it. Being made a new creature means being placed alive to God in Christ. That's what we read in Romans 6.11. I'll give you that up here on the board. Even so, consider, that's the Greek word logizomai, it means to calculate. In other words, don't make any mistake about this. It's that true. There's no warm and fuzzy here. You're dead to sin. If you're alive in Christ, you're dead to sin. That's it. You're a new creature. You've been made alive. That far extends far beyond just a gavel coming down. He's done a lot more than just say you're justified. A lot more. He's actually changed you. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me give you a couple of alternative translations for additional clarity. Here's the King James Version, Romans 6, 2. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Or I'll give you the Amplified. Certainly not. How can we, the very ones who died to sin, continue to live in it any longer? Calculate that. That's what logizomai means. Calculate that. Calculate means it's literally a discrete answer. Like, you know, in a calculator, you say 3 plus 2 is what? 5. Does it come out all hazy? Does it stop flipping from 6 to 9 and it's all confused? No, it's calculated. 3 plus, five, three plus 2 is 5. If you're saved, you're saved. Calculate it. There's no woman fuzzy. There's no, well, maybe I'll choose later. Maybe I'll change. No. You're changed if you're saved. Holy. Born again. Not a dressed up piggy. Not something deferred for a later date. You are changed. 
that's much more, my friends, than just some forensics we call justification. This simply means that if you're born again, you are wholly changed, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly changed, not partially, not sort of, holy. New means new, not reformed, not improved, brand new. Justification doesn't make a new person. It removes a penalty. Justification doesn't make a new person. There's nowhere in the Bible that says justification makes a new person. It removes a penalty. It says you are now made righteous in Christ Jesus. The gavel came down. You are now what we would call theologically justified. That's all judicial, wonderful grace gifts, beautiful things in Scripture. But that's not the whole of salvation. And that's what the Spirit's been saying. He wants you to see the difference. He wants you to not leave out <laughs> some of the sweetest parts, frankly. So let us not subtract from God's grace in saving us. This is what the Spirit's been teaching us all along about the grace of God up here on the board. We call it efficacious grace. Grace is perfect. It never fails. It saves and sanctifies. It saves and subjects. It makes new. It changes. Its recipients bear fruit. They persist. They endure. They overcome. They submit and obey. Efficacious means effective, able to produce a desired result. You may not understand. I think about this all the time. You may not understand how in the world is he going to get me there. But he does. He does. How's that going to happen in my life? But lo and behold, it happens. Either you believe that or you don't. Either you believe that God is able or you don't. If you believe that He can save you, but His grace doesn't include a complete inward born-again result, then you are believing the wrong gospel. That's what He's been saying. In other words, practically speaking, as some have done, if you think that salvation is just justification and that's the end of it, then you actually have not included all the changes that have taken place. And if you don't include all the changes that have taken place at salvation, you have something that you have to do with all that scripture that describes those changes that really do happen at salvation. So now you become confused about grace and works after salvation, if you're even saved. Hmm. It would be just a lot simpler just to say, God's going to do what He says He is going to do. That God really is going to change us. That God really is going to adopt us into His family. That God's really going to change us, make us new. That's not described in a gavel stroke. That's something supernatural. Much, much bigger than just the judicial aspects that occur at salvation. Now, in contrast to that truth, there is such a thing as perverted grace. Any gospel that supposes a person is able, not God, to effectuate grace is a perverted gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
being a new creature isn't simply an ability to become, it is become. I know that sounds weird, but that's what it sounds like in the Greek. (laughs) Being a new creature isn't simply an ability to become, it is become. Think of the aorist tense. Something that happens and carries on forever and ever. That's what we just, I just gave you. You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. You're a new creature at salvation. So that the only thing, it did, a gavel didn't just come down. A bunch of other stuff happens. So this is what the Spirit's been trying to tell us. Being a new creature isn't simply an ability to become. It is become. We don't sanctify the new creature with our volition. The new creature is already sanctified wholly. It doesn't need to be improved, in other words. The phrase is become, I know that's kind of queer sounding, right? I don't mean like homosexual, I mean queer. (laughs) Jeez, people. It's like, you know, it's like, I forget it. You said bum. Is become may sound awkward to an English-speaking person. It does, right? It sounds kind of weird. But that's what the aorist tense means in the Greek. That's what it means. I know it sounds odd, but that's exactly what it means. It means is become. You, 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 have, you, you, you are a new creature. You've become a new creature. And you are forevermore. By the grace of God. The experiential sanctification that we talk about in the Bible is not some attempt by man to further sanctify the new creature. That's a whole nother thing. But you're not, you're not further sanctifying the new creature. The new creature is perfect. To calculate something different is folly. Romans 6.11, even so, consider, calculate, logismi, yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus, is become. That's who you are. That's what it means. If a believer were to die today, the new creature doesn't somehow improve on its way to heaven. What happens is that the flesh goes to the grave. If you are saved, you are made alive in Christ Jesus. If you're made alive, then you shall walk in the light. Now, let's just finish our formal study here with some scripture on the topic of being born again. Holy Scripture reveals to us that a lot happens at salvation, and it's all by grace. Go to 2 Peter 1-2. I'm just going to go through some scripture with you. I think that's all the Spirit's been saying for over a year now. If we're going to go out with the Great Commission, then let's do it right. Let's have the gospel correct. Let's have the whole thing um, in our arsenal. Let's present the whole thing for what it truly is. Let's not add to it. But also, just as importantly, let's not subtract from it. 
2 Peter 1, 2. A lot happens at salvation. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him <coughs> excuse me, who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we know that we become partakers of the divine nature. It means the same thing as being born again. Go to John 3.3. 3. John 3.3. 3. So these are some big changes, you understand? These are changes that are separate theologically, if you would, separate topics from just justification and the judicial aspects of salvation. John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, how in the Born again? Yeah, born again. This is in contrast to the nature we were all born with. Go to Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1. Yeah, born again. It's a big deal, folks, to be saved. We don't have to do much other than be humble, make a decision about Christ. What do we think of Christ? What say you of the gospel? That's about as far as it goes for us. But there's a lot that goes on. It's a big deal. It's a miracle. Just can you stop for a second? Everybody wants to talk about miracle and what is it? 32nd Street. What's that movie? How do you say? 34th? Something like that. Who cares? Right, Bill? Everybody wants to talk about miracles because this time of season. How about the miracle of salvation? Let me ask you a question. What's a bigger miracle? A baby coming out of a womb and going, and being born? Or a person being born again? What's a bigger miracle? See, the world will tell you the first is a bigger miracle. Oh, it's such a miracle, you know, baby's born. How about the fact that you were spiritually dead? How about that miracle? And he made you alive. How about that? How about you're born again? What? How about he makes you a new creature? Oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. How about the, by the grace of God you get to spend, he gives you his own eternal life. Oh, what? What? Do you, what? We're not talking about breathing oxygen. We're not talking about biochemistry. When a, you, know, you slap the baby's bum and it comes alive. That's a, don't get me wrong, that's quite a thing. But eternal life is imparted to my account? Me? What? Yeah. These are real miracles, my friends. These are not, this is a big deal. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead. <laughs> oh, crap, right? Oh, man, you are dead. Just think about that. Dead, kaput. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Do you see? That was you. That was you. Do you understand? There's a lot more to salvation. He saved you from that. There's a lot more that happens at salvation than just the words you are justified. The penalty is no longer counted. There's a lot more that happens. You were born dead. <laughs> and now you're alive. Look at in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That means you walked by means of Satan. Think about that. The God of this world filled your sails. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Yeah, that was you. By nature. Oh, man. So God's got a lot of work on His hands at salvation. He has to change you. He has to make you new. You're born dead. He has to make you alive. He says, rather than try to fix up the pig, I'm going to make you completely a new creature that will never, ever want to sin again, that will hate sin, that will despise sin. That's much more than just a judicial reality. We were born as children of wrath by our very nature, but thanks be to God for saving us. Go to Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5. I guess if we're going to carry around the most precious thing we could ever carry around, the greatest treasure we've ever known, which is the gospel... We ought to have it right. And I think that's what the Spirit's been teaching us. We ought to have it right. We ought to have our senses um, proper about it. Titus 3.5 he, sa he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Oh, man. This is serious stuff. Far beyond our comprehension. Far beyond just, I use this term lightly, merely being justified. Far beyond that. Whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What do you see there? Justification, in a sense, logically, theologically, although don't ask me to draw it on a timeline. We'll start getting into goofy things like lapsarianism. Justification is an absolute part of salvation by grace. But look all that happens 
this concept of being born again is pervasive in the Bible. Go to 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23. And I really do want you to read that blog on Saturday. It'll be uh, quite helpful. 1 Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Go to 1 John 2, 29. 1 John 2, 29. These are, I mean, this is just a small collective of Scripture that highlights what the Spirit's getting at this evening and has been getting at for a very long time. 1 John 2.29, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is what? Born of Him. How about 1 John 3.9? 1 John 3.9, go there. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That's a description of the new creature. John is speaking of the simple fact that the new nature, as a partaker of the divine nature, cannot sin, for God cannot sin. That makes sense. That makes sense. The simple fact that the new nature as a partaker of the divine nature cannot sin, for God cannot sin. One last verse to drive all this to completion. Go to verse 5 4. 1 John 5 4. First John 5 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that pretty much finishes our formal development of the doctrines that underpin grace and works. I mean, we could go on and on in Scripture on the topic of grace, and likewise with works. But remember the genesis of our endeavor in this now 28-part series. The Spirit's been focusing our attention on certain passages of Scripture that people have made, quote-unquote, difficult in their flesh. That's been our approach to grace and works. Why would they be difficult? Why would either topic be difficult? So we've had sort of a focused view into Scripture. But we could go on and on. I could teach for, I mean, forever on grace, let's face it, <clears throat> um, for a very, very long time on works because one produces the other. But that wasn't our endeavor. Our endeavor was really to focus on why... And how do, does man pervert grace and works? And, and what passages do people go to to do these things? And that's been what the Spirit's been after. As a result of perverting the grace of God, these same people who do it have no chance of fully understanding the works of God and or man at least not within the realm of grace orientation. So I want to close up this series with some final thoughts um, on the connective tissue, because that's the best place to end, I believe, between grace 
and that which it produces, which is works. That's been the topic, 28 parts. We've delved into this area, we've delved into that area. Obviously, we spent the lion's share of time on grace, which makes total sense because if you get grace right, works, easy. But he wanted us and he had us focused on the connective tissue between grace and works. So I just want to leave you with some thoughts, some closing thoughts. Uh, big series, but um, we'll see what the Spirit does with your soul and these thoughts on grace and works. One of the easiest ways to discern if your works are by grace is to understand your motivation. I mean, how often does that come up? <laughs> it's all about motivation. It really is. It's, I mean, one of the easiest ways to discern if your works are by grace is to understand your motivation. If the predominant motivation isn't towards pleasing God, whatever that is, in your heart, then you need to step back and question your actual motives. That's how you know. Because I get, you know, I'll get questions. Well, what do you think about that? Is this a good work? Is that a good work? How do I know? You'll know. Just step back and check your motivation. What are you doing it for? Are you doing it for the same reasons Jesus would do it? Or are you doing it for you? What's your motivation? Do you want some accolades out of it? Would you do the same thing if no one was looking? That's how you know. It's that simple. It's not supposed to be hard. God sees the heart. So one of the easiest ways to discern if your works are by grace is to understand your motivation. If the predominant motivation isn't towards pleasing God, because that's what brings glory to God, then you need to step back and question your actual motives. This ties back to that recurring theme in our studies that grace is not meant to accommodate man. One of the biggest themes, one of the biggest statements from the pulpit as of late, in this series specifically, was and is, grace does not, is not meant to accommodate man. That's a big deal. Because a lot of people think, grace, good for me. Good for me, my standards. So therefore, grace accommodates me. And anything that accommodates me, I get to turn back and say, that must be grace. You remember what we had fun with it? Oh, that's grace. No, it's not. That's, 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 not, no, that's not grace. You like it. Your flesh likes the idea of whatever it is. But do not pervert grace and say, oh, that's grace. Because it's good for you and your ridiculous flesh. Grace is not meant to accommodate man. Grace is meant to accommodate God. And if it, whatever that thing is doesn't bring glory to God, then guess whose grace it wasn't? Okay. If you're thinking, saying, or doing something on the premise that grace accommodates man, if that's like one of the perversions in your soul, if you're thinking, saying, or doing something on the premise that grace accommodates man, then you can rest assured that fundamentally, whatever it is that you're doing, a.k.a. your works, are wood, hay, and straw. 1 Corinthians 3.12. In lay terms, if you're doing something for you, I mean, your motivation is you for selfish reasons, then it's wood, hay, and straw. Because we're supposed to lay down our lives for others. Now, someone might say, but, okay, Pastor, I noticed um, I noticed you've been working out. It seems like that's for you. That was a joke, by the way. 
do you realize this is a God's honest truth? Now, you may choose to believe me or not. Many times. I've said this. You, my family can attest to this. Many times when I'm out there. I, I actually ran up and down the road today in 25-degree weather, and it hurt. My lungs burned, and I don't have good legs. I mean, I'm kind of like, you know, not doing so well. And I'm not, tell, I'm not kidding you. It's for you as much as it is for me. I want to stay healthy so I can stand here. I want to stay healthy for as long as possible so that I don't become physically weak, so that I don't become drawn down. Do you understand? I want to be strong in every sense of the word. Not me. God's the one who gives me the air to breathe, the, the, the energy, the, the body. <laughs> These are the things I tell myself. Right? But my motivation is good. I'm not saying it's always perfect. I'm just saying. You understand? So you don't get silly either. Don't, you know, just become a hermit and say, oh, if I don't, if I step out of the house, it must be something completely identified. No, there's got to be a strategy. I mean, even your strategy in life, you know, why do you go to work? You know, sometimes you might say, ah, you know, this is awesome. I had a great time at that, you know, the get together and it was great. And geez, I didn't think about Jesus once. Now I'm condemned. No. Have a strategy, right? I mean, you're going to work so that you can support your family. Are you going to work so that you can get rid of $1,800 in debt? Just saying. I mean, are you going to work so that you can help in that way? Because those, <laughs> those are good strategies, right? They may not always, you know, every little minutia might not line up to where it's totally identifiable. But you have a strategy that's for God. So don't get weird either. Okay? People do. I do. I sometimes I have these weird, you know, experiences with myself. I'm like, you just gotta get out more often. I mean, the point is, is any of this difficult to understand? Let's go like this, right? And say, does God, Scott was doing this? Scott literally started doing this. Okay. Right? And just say, do we or do we not? <laughs> I saw it, don't even lie. Do we or do we not know God's heart by now? You read your Bible. Is it, is it, I mean, he says, love me. Obey me. Just keep my commands. Right? Didn't that we just started with Deuteronomy, right? Just love me. Obey me. Keep my commands. Uh, stay, keep me near. That's, what, that's God's heart. So whenever you're doing, saying, or whatever, oh, he, wants, he wants to be right there with you. And if he's not, you got a problem. That difficult to understand? It's really not. It's really not. That's what I love about God. He's actually, uh, forgive me for saying this, but he's simple. <laughs> All of this merely requires the right perspective. Again, the point on the board, one of the easiest ways to discern if your works are by grace is to understand your motivation. If the predominant motivation isn't towards pleasing God, then you need to step back and question your actual motives. Digging a little deeper with what time we have left into the practical side of things, there's no blessing guaranteed from works done outside of true grace orientation. If God sees that your heart is self-centered or fleshly, then you cannot expect the blessing you'd receive if your heart was selfless and godly. In other words, a lot of people say, we've God, what's up? Where's the blessings? 
And he's like, um, I see your heart. Duh. You're a self-absorbed jerk. Seriously. You, you, you're even doing all that stuff at church for the wrong reasons. You're even doing these nice things for other people for the wrong reasons. You're doing it to bring glory to you. And I see your heart. So you don't get the peace that would come if you were doing it for the right reasons. You don't get the contentment that I'm willing to give you if you do it to bring glory to me and not you. That's another big thing he's been teaching us about grace and works. There's no blessing guaranteed from works done outside of true grace orientation. If God sees your, that your heart is self-centered and fleshly, you cannot expect the blessing you'd receive if your heart was selfless and godly. A selfless, godly person is a God-fearing person. We've learned this. Go to Psalm 111.10. Psalm 111.10. Go quickly, please. A selfless, godly person is a God-fearing person. A God-fearing person. And this is the beginning of wisdom. This is what I love. This echoes of that passage we began with in Deuteronomy as well. Psalm 111.10, The fear of the Lord, fear, respect, all in there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want wisdom? There you go. What's the beginning? The fear of the Lord. Respect the Lord. Fear Him. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. So this is what true wisdom looks like. If your heart isn't right and your concept of grace is perverted, you may be expecting blessings that never come. Yeah. If your heart isn't right, if you're not God-fearing, your concept and your concept of grace is perverted, you may be expecting blessings that never come. Remember our old saying, disappointment is nothing more than failed expectations, right? So you're going to live a disappointing life. I often wonder about that. Why are so many people living disappointing lives? I think I wrote something like this on Facebook. How do I say it? Um, the most miserable people I know are consistently the most self-absorbed. The most miserable people I know are consistently the most self-absorbed. Why? Because they're always disappointed. Why? Because they have selfish expectations. And they want to impose them on God. Where's that coming from? Grace accommodates man. Do you see it? Do you see the underlying theology? Well, I thought grace was supposed to accommodate me. I thought God loved me. He does love me. Love you, you moron. You're disappointed. You're without blessing. Uh, because you are just riddled with failed expectations. You're always disappointed. You're expecting things that are never going to come because you're not listening. You're not listening. He's pounding on your door and you're shutting him out. La, 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 I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Until you say something I like. You don't arm wrestle God. That's not a God-fearing person. That's an arrogant person. And that's a truly sad situation to be in because that's the very definition of a person who thinks they understand the things of God, but they are standing in darkness. And any perceived blessings are stymied. 
A person who's standing in darkness but thinks they are in the light lacks wisdom. James gives us the solution. This is the beauty. Go to James 1.5. So if this is you, then there's hope. There's always hope. You're still alive, right? There's always hope. So James helps us with the solution. James 1.5. I mean, even if this describes you, so be it. What does Scripture say? James 1.5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yeah. Again, the point of the board. There's no blessing guaranteed from works done outside true grace orientation. If God sees that your heart is self-centered, fleshly, dipsukos, double-minded, then you can expect that you cannot expect the blessing you'd receive if your heart was selfless, godly, simple, pure, etc. Another alternative perversion of grace is what leads to what many call religion and legalism. These are the folks that suppose that quote good works are a function of following some list of commands up here on the board. Sorry about the eye chart. There's no laundry list or, you know, honeydew list in the Bible that gives us what are good and bad works. Something may be good for one person, but bad for another. God doesn't judge based on the activity. Rather, he looks at the person's heart. This is why you'll never be blessed for simply doing something. Your heart must be in it. You say, all right, my neighbor Johnny did it. Seems like he's blessed up. I'm going to do it. God's like, I, didn't, I don't want you to do that. You don't put God on a treadmill. There's no laundry list, so don't read the Bible expecting to find it. Remember this old friend? First order blessings. It's what you think of it. It's not the actual blessing. It's what you think of the blessing. The blessing is in your attitude not necessarily how your actions are received by others. You must stay focused on the fact that God sees the heart. If you give graciously to others with proper motivation, God is pleased, even if the other person responds poorly, ungratefully, etc. I think I'll end here. This came up in our lessons. What, what, about, what about giving? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Who said that? Jesus Christ himself said that. What does he mean? I mean, Jesus gave everything, and he had people spitting on him and punching him and ridiculing him and jeering him. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's true love. That's understanding how blessed it was for him to give his life. What's the greatest love? To lay down your life for others. Who perfected it? Who's the author and perfecter of our faith? Jesus Christ. What did he do? He considered it the ultimate blessing to give his life for others. Some of, you know, it's a blessing that you have the faculties to give. Let's put it that way. Do you have something to give? Remember, the, like, remember the, some of you might watch it, the little drummer boy? 
I have no gift to give, right? But he gave himself. He had a gift. You know what I'm saying? He had something to give. If you are alive right now, you have something to give. You have your life to give. Wasn't that Jesus' example? And who cares if people reject you? Who cares if you go out to a park and people are like, dude, buzz off with the gospel already. Who cares? Honest to goodness. Who cares if that happens in your own house? I mean, you know what I'm saying. You understand? We're not... I had this discussion with Joey, and he's not here, unfortunately, but the other day, it's not... We, if we focus on giving to with the expectation of receiving, we're going to be disappointed every time almost, especially when it comes to the gospel. But that's not why we give. The blessing is in the ability to give. The ability to walk through a park or down a street with a sign on your back. Just the ability to spread the gospel, the good news. That's a blessing. Doesn't require money. Doesn't require materials. Doesn't. What does it require? It requires you laying down your life. And that's grace. But if you have that little thing, and I'll leave you here, if you have that little thing that grace accommodates man, you will not live your life that way. You won't. You'll be stymied by your own doctrines. <laughs> and it all started with the gospel. Yeah. That's what he's been teaching us. Everything emanates from the centerpiece. Everything comes from the gospel. Everything. Amen? All right. I thought we were going to finish. I'll just cheat on Sunday. I won't call it part 29. I'll just be like, we're just reviewing before we go on. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this ability to gather together as family and uh, just fellowship with you, Father. What a blessing it is uh, to do this thing uh, day in and day out. This is the real highlight of our day, uh, to be able to learn your word, to trust in you, to have faith in you, that your promises are real, that your grace and your love are real, and that we are partakers in your very divine nature, Father. What a stupendous gift that is. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for sharing your life with us so that we might go out and share it with others. We ask for your strength and your guidance as we do these things. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.